Good afternoon. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. Grim. That's the weather forecast, so don't change the dial. Fun. That's what we're going to have here today. We've got a roundup of a wild weekend of politics that included a record-breaking win for Democratic senatorial candidate Elizabeth Warren, who blew her opponent out of the water and off the ballot at the state convention in Springfield. Now the serious fight starts as we look ahead to a series of debates between Warren and incumbent Senator Scott Brown. Meanwhile, Brown's voting record is now getting more scrutiny, while the ancestry issue is still dogging Elizabeth Warren. Here with me is Garrett Quinn, author of the Less Is More blog on Boston.com, and David Bernstein, who's the political editor of um, and writes the Talking Politics blog for the Boston Phoenix. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> David, you got you actually were at the convention. How was I, it? I was there in in beautiful downtown Springfield, Massachusetts, <laughs> as anybody would want to be uh, on a on a rainy uh, rainy weekend. Uh, it was it was good. I thought that um, it, that the Attendance and energy was surprisingly high for there really being nothing at stake. You know, none of the constitutional officers, uh, you know, that's every four years. Uh, So this is sort of the in-between one. Uh, The comparison would be against four years ago in 2008 when uh, it was John Kerry. uh, They held the state convention in Lowell, and the only thing on the ballot was John Kerry running for re-election and Ed O'Reilly running in the primary was trying to get his 15%. And and I was there in Lowell, and it was really poorly attended. People just didn't want to, you know, take their weekend to go. These were people, you know, delegates yeah, selected yeah. A, a couple months earlier. But then when the time comes, they're like, yeah, I got other things to do. <laughs> uh, you know, especially getting out somewhere like Springfield. Um, it, it, the the roll call numbers uh, for that convention in Lowell showed that about twenty six hundred voting uh, delegates showed up. And for Springfield this past weekend, it was about 3,600. Wow. So a lot more actually bothered to show up, uh, which says something about the enthusiasm that people have towards or Elizabeth Warren. How and also, yeah. And also possibly a little bit uh, the effect of some of the media controversy. I think it was a little ginned up about whether DeFranco was going to get the 15%. And so that made it seem more important that people actually get out there to cast their vote for Elizabeth Warren. But I thought the the energy was was pretty high for, hmm. uh, you know, for a convention out in Springfield without a whole lot of meaning to it. Meanwhile, it was it was historical in a sense. I think it's been, well, decades anyway, since somebody didn't get the 15 percent. It's a pretty low threshold. But it was clear that the Democrats were just wanted to make this a clean sweep for Elizabeth Warren. I, I'd be interested to hear uh, how they actually went about that. But here, here was a little bit of Marisa DeFranco commenting on, on what happened after she didn't make her 15 percent. Well, it's Massachusetts politics. Of course it's a machine. We're supposed to be a government of the people. That means everybody. Not just of the ones who are handpicked or in the certain cliques. I actually like her a lot. I mean, I, she, she's 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 very thoughtful. She's really well informed on immigration issues. You know, there have been a lot of flaky candidates in the past. I'm not sure she, you know, fits in that category. But I, on the other hand, I can also see how that they don't want any distractions at this point with Scott Brown. I, I was not at the convention. I was stuck across the street in a radio studio for four hours, and I was fielding calls from people. Uh, I know my, my station has, been, has sort of been blowing up DeFranco uh, to, to make her into this bigger, larger-than-life figure. And I think a, a lot of that, you know, if you saw a lot of the uh, hype and attention around her was really coming from, from, from the right 
uh, and a lot of the speculation about how oh she's a viable candidate or she's going to make it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I never really saw that. I always I, I always saw her as possibly it, there was still time for her to get out to to switch and run as a green uh, because I don't think the green anybody's pulled papers to run uh, as a green in this in this race and you've got I think nine people have pulled papers to run as independents but it doesn't look like any of them have made the ballot. DeFranco just was never. Uh, was never somebody who was a, a true, a real serious challenger to Warren. Yeah, she made it on the ballot, but at the, at the end of the day, the, I think something like the, the Warren campaign started uh, organizing for the the, dele- the uh, convention in, in December, mm. I think it was. It was like really early for a, a relatively meaningless uh, coronation. Um, I, I, you know, again, a lot of the hype around around uh, DeFranco was really driven by people that like Brown. I think that also hurt her with a lot of demo, a lot of her base because she was she's going on she was going on a lot of shows that were clearly not friendly right, towards right. Democrats. And well, we'll, no one else. And then that was the, that was the whole <laughs> angle. That was the angle. It's like here we can get her in there and she can wound I mean, Warren. Did she burn some bridges? She wasn't very gracious. Does it matter? Well, how- well, I don't know that it matters. I think that that she did, but I don't know that it necessarily matters. She wants to be the sort of, uh, it, you know, similar to what Grace Ross has been, the sort of uh, the, you know, the conscience, the liberal conscience of the Democratic Party here. You know, um, I, I was also impressed with her. Uh, you know, I saw her in a couple of uh, debate forum uh, situations uh, earlier in the process. You know, back in the fall, thought she was very impressive, well spoken. You know, she. Went around the state uh, constantly talking to groups of Democrats, and uh, it was very good. But she never was able to to bring over any uh, any groups uh, <clears throat> of any substance. You know, she wasn't able to get any funding. She wasn't able to put together organization and staff and so forth. Um, she just never got anything going. And the the other really, I think, you know, sort of telling thing was that uh, there were a lot of uh, people, a lot of establishment sort of people who were not real thrilled about Elizabeth Warren sort of coming in and bigfooting the process. And that includes the other candidates, you know, the Seti yeah. Warrens and, and and Bob Massey's. And all of them, including insiders you never heard of, but also those candidates, uh, ended up pretty heartfeltly uh, endorsing Elizabeth Warren rather than sort of giving any kind of uh, hope to uh, an alternate candidate. Dave's point about her not really having any real organization or staff, it goes to it goes to my experiences there too, trying to seek comment from her about anything. It would go to her personal voicemail and it would be full. Every time I would call her, really? it was it was full. You can never, it was really difficult to get a hold of her. Yeah, she didn't have anybody to really, any staff, any real organization at all. Uh, so, I, I, I I don't think this is her at all because I don't see her being a even even no, disrespect to Grace well, I don't see her no being a significant her figure name. in the Democratic Party. I agree. Party. I agree. I, and I think in retrospect, it I, was, Warren really yeah. has stolen the that stole, has taken the progressive mantle, and she's united sort of these establishment Democratic figures and these progressive figures as well. Right. Let's let's hear a little bit of Warren. This is uh, she's talking about uh, Scott Brown during her acceptance speech. Here's a little what she had to say. How does a Wall Street, big oil, Mitt Romney Republican plan to win? His answer is to talk about anything except how he voted on jobs, education, the environment, oil subsidies, or special deals for Wall Street. His answer is to talk about my family and how I grew up. Well, I say this, if that's all you've got, Scott Brown, I'm ready. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't ever remember Scott Brown once bringing up the ancestry issue 
in in a verbal kind of he's he said yeah I'm interested in it but I, I has he brought it up yeah. has he he has he brought he brought it up out in, in Springfield when he when he they were talking about she, he said something along the lines of oh my parents told me things that weren't true I, I forget the right. exact quote but it was something along those lines but I mean he, he, it's not like he's been the media has handled yeah. this yes but. Uh, no and but I think this was exactly the right brilliant way for them to handle it politically as a, as a in terms of handling this uh, here's the first big speech that she's giving, uh, you know that if she made any kind of reference to the Native American controversy, the heritage controversy, that was going to be the soundbite that yeah. would be played on this show, would be played everywhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they made sure that that clip was all about what they wanted to say about Scott Brown. It yeah. was all about Scott Brown is big business, big oil, Wall Street, who has voted the wrong way and against your interests, and he's just coming after me because he's got nothing positive to say. It, it was very cleverly done to get that message because this speech was very clearly intended to to start the Scott Brown defining process of of the election for them. They feel like they've done the the Elizabeth Warren introduction stuff. Now it's time to define Scott Brown the way they want to. And they're they used this uh controversy to get that message out there through the speech, I think. And there and there was a lull too between the introduction period of her campaign and now where they're starting to to try attempting to define Scott Brown. And as we saw it, it was the last six, seven, whatever weeks it's been where she was just getting hammered with the American Indian story. Uh, and 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 it, and it was her campaign really came out of the, came screaming out the gate with this introduction you know this uh, this introductory phase she rallied the Democratic Party around her cleared all her opponents out mm-hmm. and then it was just sort of oh, you know it sort of plateaued for a while then she took all these hits for the American Indian story and now it's it it I don't want to say she's turning a corner coming coming out of the convention with a huge uh, burst of momentum but she's trying to really turn the page and move forward. Yeah, it's, it's been a painful five or six weeks for that. But I'm wondering what you think um, over the weekend, well, today, the Boston Globe had a story about how a- after voting for Dodd-Frank, uh, Scott Brown then, after the fact, sought to loosen some of the restrictions in the banking rules, particularly this Volcker rule, which would put even more restrictions on extremely risky investments for banks. And apparently he was trying to loosen that up a little bit. Do you think that was an opposition research placement from somebody? It's certainly well timed. Uh, it's certainly well timed. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, the the, all, the importance of this story all depends on how much, how well the Democrats can capitalize it. If they can, if, if, if Democrats can extend the the life cycle of the story out several days the way uh, Republicans were able to do with the the, the American Indian story, then this will have a significant impact. The problem I, I see with the story, these stories attacking Brown for his positions on Wall Street is they're fairly complicated. The, the, if you went up on the went up to 10 people on the street and asked them what the vocal rule is, no. they'd look at you and ask you, like, what? Is that some new rule in the NFL related mm. to, you know, pass interference or something? They would have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about. So I, it, it, the stuff that, that Warren's going to hit Brown on is, extru- is a lot more complex than the, it's a, it's very complex. The stuff that that's been thrown at Warren is is not so much as complex; it's just kind of strange and bizarre. But that that may be the stuff that sticks because the other yeah. stuff people don't understand. Well, you could easily take the stuff out of this and cut it into a thirty-second ad, say Wall Street's favorite senator, and take cuts from that story and throw in some misleading stuff here and there. But uh, it, it's a bit more complicated to. To, cr- to cut that down in a 30-second ad and, and really drive it home. But I think that's that's exactly why it is uh, a problem for Scott Brown. Uh, and, and this was a 
clearly a godsend for uh, for the Warren folks coming when it did. Uh, it, it on, on your question of was it an, an Oppo thing? My get it, it didn't seem to me like it was because it seemed to me like something that would have come out of a FOIA, uh, a Freedom of Information Act request of the, yeah, it was of, email. Of the yeah. department, chief of staff, the department yeah. that you know. So I. Uh, you know, my guess, it, it it seemed like a logical thing that the Globe would have been pursuing that for some time to try to get uh, it, that information uh, out of the Department of Treasury or whatever it was. Uh, and it, presumably they just happened to I'm not sure I understand it, it himself. But, I mean, he, he voted for Dodd-Frank. And then w- what was the point of trying to loosen this? Well, um, there are various regulations. I mean, first of all, he made... He, he insisted on some changes to it before he would vote for it because uh, he was the deciding vote. Um, but then also, uh, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of the bill uh, requires the, the the executive branch uh, uh, offices to write the specific regulations or create the specific agencies or whatever. And uh, and there are a lot, there's a lot of interpretation involved in that. And so he was trying to work on the interpretation end of it. And and Garrett's exactly right that it's very complicated. You cannot possibly expect people to, to actually understand what he was doing, whether it was good or bad. But but the problem is that for him, yeah. that, that if that if there's going to be this constant attempt to to portray him as big business, big Wall Street, big oil, you know, a big big Romney Republican, then anything that looks like it might be that way falls into that narrative. And a lot, and, and, and a lot of the polling data we've seen so far has shown that the attacks on Brown for being Wall, Mr. Wall Street, da, 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 they have had the same impact as the American Indian story, which is not much. Right. Uh, right. They really haven't haven't really stuck with him yet. Uh, yeah, this story is pretty. It's pretty. It's a pretty damning. Well, it's a, beer, beer, you know. Um, they, they did a priest, uh, Beerman and Levinson, no, did a really Beerman, good piece uh, on Mike this. Yeah, and, uh, and, but I don't, I, again, we'll have to see what the life is of this story. If this just is one and then it's over. Uh, Believe me, it's well, too what, complicated to have a well, life. That's, that's well, the I thing. agree with that. I, I agree with <laughs> it's, that. And it's I not think as the bizarre as the American Indian story. But I think the what? comparison is exactly right because, uh, because in both cases, I don't think that there's been harm done right now in terms of uh, swaying anyone's vote for either yeah. for either one. But in both cases, the campaigns have have sort of got something tucked in the back of people's mind that that hey maybe Elizabeth Warren is someone who isn't really being honest about how she got where she is uh, in in life. And on the other side, maybe Scott Brown is being more republican than yeah. than he makes out to be when he's talking to us. And in both cases I don't think these specific story, stories are enough to sway in and of themselves, but it depends on what stories come over the next months that seem to add on to that narrative. And that's that's yeah. where the I mean, trouble he had would yet come. It's another it, story on that ancestry thing today with the a group of black ministers challenging or asking Elizabeth Warren to meet with them because they want to know whether she used this to get ahead. I mean, she still hasn't really answered these questions satisfactorily, in, in, in my opinion. I'm sick of the story. I know. Do you think it'll it, come up in the debates that, they, that yeah. they're talking about? That... Yeah. Well, first of all, if there's any journalists involved, it will. Yeah. It's going to have to. I, I'm just I, I'm trying to envision a situation where she handles that question in a debate live. She'll do what uh, she had. And, and then, the, and then middle class Americans but, are getting hammered. Yeah, but, That's what she's going to say. <laughs> Instead of saying, 
anything about her heritage, that's what she'll say. The middle class is getting hammered. It has nothing to do with the question. Yeah, well, I, she, she, I know I saw there was a, I think it was BuzzFeed did a clip of the top 10 best stone walls from <laughs> politicians. I think she was number three or something. <laughs> but um, no, I, it, the, the, the bigger part of that, when that comes to the debate, though, will be how Brown responds. Because Brown right. is, I, 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 has to be very, very careful with not going to pushing too hardly unless it coming across as a bully or coming across well, in a very negative light. And I think so far he's navigated that uh, fairly well. I, I think so too. Uh, the problem that uh, that's the backdrop to this is of course the people's pledge, uh, which, which I uh, hate that thing so much, which uh, <laughs> this I, is the, against the citizens United. Yeah, so they don't, yeah. They, so they've, the two camps have agreed <laughs> to discourage any outside groups from doing advertising uh, in support of their campaigns, um, and you know, made this pledge that uh, if any so do, ridiculous. It, it is. I, I find that it is ridiculous. It's such however, a somebody's going to break the rule uh, however, at some the, point. The, the The fact of the matter is that right now that is what's out there, and so the so Karl Rove and other groups have not been able to come in and run ads yeah. making fun of uh, Elizabeth Warren, you know, putting a headdress, you know, in your yeah, headdress yeah. on or whatever. So, <laughs> oh, so but that would backfire. I gotta well, believe. Well, but it would. Ba- <laughs> I but mean, that's, that's why going too far. But but that's Scott Brown's problem. Is it is how can he keep that story going? How can he push that story? Um, it, you know, is he going to include it in his ten million dollars of ads that he runs this fall? And if he doesn't, then how can how can he keep that story alive as a significant thing? He doesn't have someone else yeah. to come in where he can say, "Oh, I don't agree with what they're doing." You know, my hands are clean. You know, in a sort of swift boat attack kind of way, my hands are clean. They're doing it on their own. Uh, he doesn't have anyone to do that for him, and Elizabeth Warren doesn't have uh, anyone to do uh, her attacks for her, at least for now. And so they, in order to make these kinds of attacks, they have to risk, you know, looking bad themselves you know, for picking on the other person. You know who loses out more than anybody because of uh, the People's Pledge? The people? The people. Television stations. <laughs> Television and radio. Oh, they yeah. hate it. Oh. <laughs> okay, talking to Garrett Quinn, author of The Less is More blog on Boston.com and Boston Phoenix political editor David Bernstein. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. When we continue, what did our governor have to say on the National Sunday talk show circuit? We'll have that and more. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show from 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. This program is made possible thanks to you and Harvard Vanguard Medical Associates, offering complete health care for you and your family. With 21 locations across greater Boston, Harvard Vanguard welcomes new patients and accepts most insurance. CareMadeEasy.org, an affiliate of Atrius Health. And the English Channel on WGBH 44. Mondays, catch Ashes to Ashes, Hustle, and MI5. It's drama with a British accent every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night on WGBH 44. And the growing number of WGBH sustainers who manage their contributions to public radio with the help of monthly installments and automatic renewals. Learn more about the ease of sustaining membership at WGBH.org. Flamenco music may not be a natural fit for the sitar, but Anushka Shankar says Spanish flamenco and Indian ragas share one thing in common, fancy footwork. In Indian dance, people wear bells on the feet to accentuate the foot patterns, and it's 
absolutely in tandem with the percussionist. And in flamenco, the same is true. A raga flamenco journey with Anushka Shankar, next time on The World. Coming up at 3 o'clock here at 89.7 WGBH. Hi, my name's John, and I'm a WGBH sustainer. Sustainers like John break their gifts down into monthly installments that automatically renew. That helps 89.7 plan better, and better plans mean fewer fundraisers. And that's why John is responsible for this hour of programming coming to you fundraiser-free. Thanks, John. Support WGBH as a sustainer online at WGBH.org. On the next Callie Crossley Show, we'll check in with our political insiders, Arnie Arneson and Fergus Cullen, for their take on the regional and national races, today at 1 on WGBH. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. We're talking politics this hour with Garrett Quinn, author of The Less Is More blog on Boston.com, and David Bernstein, Boston Phoenix political reporter and author of the Talking Politics blog. We were just talking about the Massachusetts Senate race, but now I'm going to turn our attention to national politics. Uh, as we all know, Governor Deval Patrick has been quite the surrogate uh, for President Barack Obama. He was on the Sunday talk show circuit again yesterday. Uh, it was a tough weekend. To, to be uh, bolstering Barack Obama after the jobs reports and economic indicators of all last week. The, all the gains for the year on the Dow have been completely wiped, wiped out. out, just totally wiped out as of today. So here is uh, Governor Deval Patrick talking about jobs on uh, Meet the Press. Job gains are always good news. 27 straight months of, uh, of job gains is great news, but we're never going to have the rate of job gains that we need uh, until the Congress passes the jobs bills that, had, that uh, the president has put before them. So is that going to work, David, putting the blame back on Congress? No. No. You know, look, it, 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 the, uh, a great deal of the election depends on how the economy goes. Uh, it, if it if we end up with a very very close election, which would be you know my guess is if the economy moves forward nicely but not fast enough, then we might end up with a very very close election. And then at the margins, yes, this argument can work. Of uh, you know he it, it would be better if not for the Republicans, blame the Republicans. So at the margins, it can make a difference. But the basic thing is is that if the economy you know if next month there's there's two hundred fifty thousand new jobs, then the then it's the Republican surrogate who's going to look stupid. You know it, it it that's just how it works, and that's how the election's going to go. The the one way the, the, the even though the economy is start look look it's heading in the wrong direction. The one thing that could end up helping too is people aren't talking about gas prices anymore. No, gas that's prices true. have gone they way have gone down, down. Yeah. way down, and that could certainly end up helping him uh, significantly because you no longer have. Uh, I remember Newt Gingrich's gimmick, uh, gimmick where he was running around with a, what was it two dollar <laughs> gas or something, yeah, whatever it was. which I don't think yeah. we'll ever see in our lifetime. What, what did y'all think of David Axelrod's uh, performance last week? He was in town. I think it was Thursday. He's in front of the state house steps, and he was trying to talk about Mitt Romney's record while he was governor here in uh, Massachusetts. Uh, here's here's a little bit of um, what he was trying to say. Massachusetts stumbled under Governor Romney. He brought the or uh, orientation of a financial engineer whose career has not been about generating jobs. It's been about generating short-term profit. Not about I mean, this was just a complete and other bu bus. And also, I thought Wait, it was, was incredibly saying... amateurish. 
for David Axelrod. I mean, they obviously didn't anticipate that they were going to get a counter. He thought he was going to be speaking to, you know, friends of Barack Obama only. I thought he was chanting five more months the whole time. I couldn't. Nobody knew what he was saying. And then he, you know, he, then he got into this whole, you know, shout me down. But it was just terrible. It was. It was. It was, it was an a, embarrassment. It was a disastrous. Uh, P- PR, uh, a PR stunt of, of sorts. But I think it lo- reflected, it reflected poorly on Republicans, too. Did uh, it? Yeah, that, I mean, that's, yeah, that's kind of, that's childish stuff. And the Republicans would, re- Sean, <laughs> Sean Hannity would get up on his high horse and rant and rave about how if, if Democrats did this to Ann Coulter or somebody, he would get up there and rant about how they're just suppressing free speech and destroying uh, destroying uh, freedom in America and things like that. I just it, the whole thing was a wash. I, I, I it was certainly uh, entertaining to, 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 to see and read about, but uh, it, it ended up getting it ended up, as you were talking before, it ended up getting uh, the whole thing getting sort of swept, ended up getting swept under the rug because of the John Edwards. So yeah, but yeah the whole thing was a, it was a mess. See, I'm gonna, I'm gonna describe. I was there. <laughs> Were you? <laughs> uh, I was there. Uh, it was a you know a, a fiasco sort of thing. But uh, a couple of of points I'll try to make quickly. One is that that all that that the Obama campaign is trying to do at this point is to put out there that there are chips in the armor for the notion that. Uh, Mitt Romney knows what he's doing with the economy, right? So, so you just get stuff out there about Bain. Nobody quite understands what happened with a particular factory, you know, some company, but they know that there's some argument out there that he's not really pro jobs because of his Bain record. Now they want to have out there that there's this whole bunch of Massachusetts lawmakers who claim that that he didn't do a good job with the economy when he was governor of Massachusetts. Who know you know for the three hundred million people in the United States, they have no idea what to make of that, but they now know that there's some kind of argument out there about him not being a good governor. That it's very very difficult to draw attention to an event like this, uh, you know, that doesn't have a major surrogate, you know, Obama himself or a major surrogate uh, in front of a state house in a, in a state you know that that's not uh, at at play in the election, and. The, the Romney team, because they wanted to feel good and come down from their North End headquarters and be part of the, yeah. the action. So they all came down. You know, it was all staffers and volunteers from the headquarters came down and made this circus out of it, which was a great morale booster for them at the headquarters. But by doing that, they made it into a national story. And everybody has been hearing, you know, to some extent, not a lot. Uh, you know, you're right. Obviously, it got subsumed by other national stories, by actual, you know, stories <laughs> where this wasn't one. But a lot of people saw something about that there was this confrontation, uh, you know, this circus thing having to do with the election, having to do with Massachusetts legislators saying that Romney was a bad governor. So they got that word out because of what the Republicans were doing. Second, very quick point I want to make is think back to the fall campaign uh, when John McCain started to lose control of the Republican base, where they were showing up at at events uh, just out of control, yelling and screaming, just going nuts, screaming at socialism, screaming at the press. Kenya, scre- yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just the just absolutely rude, obnoxious, and it really did not help at all the the McCain campaign. And in fact, they had to they had to cut way back on mm. what they were doing, what they wanted to do. They had to cut way back in order to cut that out. I think that the that the Romney campaign. I hope they have a plan for how they're going to deal with this going forward. But by 
by play by doing this, I mean, it's one thing. I'm all for having the guys out there, you know, with signs and and you know beforehand getting you know letting the the cameramen get their B roll. But to shout down yeah. all the speakers and but the press asking questions. That's what I was saying, dude. It, that looks out of control. Yeah. It encourages everyone else to be out of control. Uh, the Trump thing encourages the birthers and so on and so forth. And I think he's going to have a very hard time not looking like the Republican side is a bunch of zany, obnoxious jerks in this fall. So I hope he has a plan for that. Well, that's what I was saying. If this had, if, 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 if Democrats or if Democrats or a lefty group had organized some type of event like this and done it to, say, uh, Paul Paul Ryan uh, oh, or, or, or uh, an, another surrogate for Romney, uh, and it, 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 it would have been it would have been this this attack on American free speech and all this other nonsense that you know that the, the right usually tr- drags out there. I think this l- reflected very poorly on uh, Romney Romney staffers and the Republican event. But at the end of the day, nobody's going to remember this. Uh, well, yeah, I agree yeah, with that, but but also. Uh, it, this was not, and I don't want to make too big a deal of it because I don't yeah. think it's too big a deal. Yeah. But, but this, I agree. again, this was not, you know, Occupy people showing up to shout down a, a Mitt Romney surrogate. This was, this was very openly Mitt Romney's headquarters yeah. staff going there and you know booing over Hillary Chabot of the Herald yeah. trying to ask a question and John Keller trying to ask. I mean, who, you know, that just does not look good to anybody. No. On the other hand, what what uh, David Axelrod was saying was largely nonsense. Ca- <laughs> and, and, and how about untrue? I mean, it just struck me as untrue. I mean, and we we live in this state, so we, we kind of know the truth of the candidacy of the, of his term as governor. Here. I, I I think him it, it really shows that he's concerned that they won't win by thirty percent. That twenty five might not be enough. <laughs> no, Massachusetts. No, I, no, I, no, I, I <laughs> they really want to they want to cement their uh, victory no, I, here. I, you know, I think again, it's one of these these things where where you're trying to get some kind of very simple message out to the American people that that there is something to look at here, and there there are legitimate criticisms of uh, Romney's stewardship uh, uh, over the economy. Yeah, but he but really did come in, you know, promising to to bring jobs, bring corporations here, and and really did not follow through. Well, on it. And I think that there is a story to tell. Does anybody? Oh, I agree. Does yeah. anybody remember who the last presidential candidate was to win uh, win win their uh, election without? Without holding their home state, it goes way back. Because uh, Gord lost in two thousand, yeah. he lost his uh, home state. Yeah, he lost yeah. Tennessee. I'm trying to. Well, he, he's. I was also looking to see if he's going to be up there with the biggest margin of loss in, in his, his home, home state. state. You know what? Uh, this is not his home state. <laughs> well, it's well, not. He's going <laughs> he's to lose Michigan badly too. Michigan, he's going to win Utah. Yeah, he doesn't own a home in in Utah anymore. Doesn't he? New Hampshire's a coin flip. New Hampshire is coin flip, yeah. All right, moving on to other (laughs) national stories. The trees are just the right What's going to happen with Republican Governor Scott Walker tomorrow in Wisconsin, the recall election? We've kind of had our bets on this earlier. What do you think, David? You know, I think it's going to be close. I I think that, you know, it seems to be going in Walker's, uh, Walker's way. I think that... That my general opinion on these things is that is that when I, as I'm looking at the way that the polls are indicating that it's probably Walker's probably safe, but uh, but this is also something where you could have a lot of uh, a, a lot of people 
what few undecideds there are at this point are probably voting to get rid of him. You know, there are probably people who are ready to get rid of him uh, and are just wondering whether it's okay to do so. Uh, and uh, so I think it's going to be quite close. But I, it seems like I Walker believe probably in these recall elections. I, th- I think Mayor Barrett. I, 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 excuse me. I think Walker is going to sail through. Barrett, yeah, yeah, Barrett Milwaukee not, Mayor Tom Barrett is a Democrat who's within a mar- the margin of error on the polls. Barrett was not the original choice of labor, which was really the driving force of this entire thing. He's had rocky relationships with uh, Milwaukee municipal unions, uh, and they threw a ton of money behind her. Cha- his challenger uh, it was a woman. I can't remember her name off the top of my head at the moment, but uh, Walker looks uh, looks like he's also raised uh, outraised him by several million dollars uh, in, in in this fight. The uh, the one race I think people are starting to raise some concern about is the lieutenant governor's mm-hmm. race. So what that looks like it'll be more competitive. I believe that's the head of the firefighters union versus the lieutenant. So they're uh, recalling the, the lieutenant governor too. Yeah, yeah. and they're yeah. recalling four mm-hmm. state senators too. But my understanding uh-huh. is the senate, the state Talk senate seats are the state senate seats are irrelevant because <laughs> they're already out of uh, session. Which uh, so they don't do anything. It's just more symbolic. But if it, that's this is a big race too, because if Walker hangs on, it's a huge blow, I think, to Democrats and organized labor uh, throughout the country. Because this is such a na- this was such a nationalized, highly charged. It was. It was. Uh, and this has been going on forever. It seems like yeah. this has happened since Walker got elected. Well, that's true. Two years, right? Yeah. Isn't, isn't yeah. it two years? Yeah. Yeah. Good. All right, Garrett Quinn, David Bernstein. That's our politics as usual segment. Thanks so much for being with me today. My pleasure. Up next, we're going to find out why MIT and the state are betting big on big data. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show from 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. This program is on WGBH thanks to you and Newbridge on the Charles, an innovative senior living community in Dedham. The Platinum Membership Program allows you to become a social member of the community. You can find more details online at experiencenewbridge.org. And Skinner, auctioneers and appraisers. People do look very favorably on our association with WGBH. Stephen Fletcher, executive vice president. I think it's done a lot for our company. It's brought us new faces, new buyers, new consigners. I would most definitely encourage people to consider a sponsorship on WGBH. To learn more, visit WGBH.org sponsorship. I'm Callie Crossley. On the next Callie Crossley Show, we talk to our political insiders, Arnie Arneson and Fergus Cullen. We'll get their take on the presidential race, the Massachusetts Democratic Convention, and the political stories that are dominating the headlines in Rhode Island and the land of live free or die. That's Today at One on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Saturday, July 14th, it's the WGBH Fun Fest. Cool off with some of the best ice cream around, like Ben & Jerry's Boston and Friendly's. Rock out to live performances from family favorites like Steve Songs, Ben Rudnick, Fluky and the Beans, Rick Golden, and others. Meet PBS Kids characters, enjoy rides, games, and more. Tickets are going fast, so don't delay. Get the whole scoop at wgbh.org slash funfest. 
The food truck has taken big cities by storm, changing what we've come to expect from food on the go. I'm Christina Quinn. Hear how the food truck boom is changing the way we eat and why other Massachusetts towns and cities want in. Wednesday on WGBH's Morning Edition. Welcome back. You're listening to the Emily Rooney Show. We all know that there is a lot of data being generated out there, but stop and think about it for just a second. Millions of people right now are tweeting, millions, millions more are online, searching the Internet, shopping, reading articles, watching video, streaming video. And that's just scratching the surface. Like there's hundreds of instruments are recording weather data. It's just a ton of stuff. Today, June 4th alone, we humans will create more than two quintillion bytes of data. For the record, that is 18 zeros. <laughs> so where the heck is all of this information going? How's it being stored? And more importantly, what goes it anyway? That is where Sam Madden comes in. Sam is a professor at MIT and the man behind their newly announced Big Data Initiative. The aim is to take all of this data and figure out how to store it and, more importantly, analyze it. And he joins me now in the studio to talk about Big Data Welcome, Sam. Thanks, Emily. I can't even quite get my head around this. So even if you store it, you know, yeah, first of all, do you really want to? Is it, is it worth saving? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I mean, of course, a lot of these numbers that people are quoting about 18 zeros and quintillion bytes, a lot of that <laughs> is just data that's flowing th- flowing over the wires and getting thrown out in the end. But that that's an excellent question, which is what, what should we save? And of the stuff that we do save, how do we make sense of it? And that's really what we're trying to do with this big data initiative. And, and how, how do you, where do you even start with that? Well, so this, this is the research challenge, which is how do we take all this data and put it, figure out where to store it, figure out how to spread it across a whole bunch of machines so we can process it in parallel, and then how do we devise the, the software architectures that we need in order to sort of extract insights and um, make sense out of the data. What kind of data are you talking about? That's critical. So it's it's many of the things that you just you just listed. So. So the, the sort of background on big data, of course, companies and, you know, data processing has been a core application of computers and computer science for as long as we've had computers, really. But the traditional applications of data have been these very business-oriented kinds of things, taking really large collections of, uh, you know, the, the data that, you know, for example, you know, Walmart might collect data about all the sales transactions. And the traditional computer science data problems have been understanding you know, what gets sold where at different times. The, the, what's happening with big data is this sort of pro- recognition that there's been a proliferation of these data processing challenges in a whole bunch of different areas and industries. So um, it's things like like you listed, um, social media, Twitter and Facebook, how do we make sense of that data? Um, information about medicine, suddenly this recognition that you know, we're going to be able to sequence everybody's genome and we're going to be able to compare people's genomes. We're going to be able to sequence your cancer cells and understand how your cancer, one person's cancer is different from another person's cancer. We're going to be able to uh, collect data about what traffic on every road, everywhere in the United States looks like at you know a very fine-grained way. Um, so there's this movement from sort of very business-oriented data to much less um, sort of traditional, much more unstructured kind of information. And that's part of where this is all coming from. How would an individual, an institution, a hospital, a business go about accessing that if there's something they wanted to, that you've analyzed, you have some kind of a data stream from how, how would they go about getting it? But, so just to be clear, we're not, you know, at, at MIT, no, yeah. we're not talking about, we're not actually doing the collection of data. What we're really interested in is building the You're software in, yeah. tools that mm-hmm. make it possible for people to analyze the data they have. Um, 
and so that's what this this research initiative is about: is trying to find, um, come up with the right way to let people make sense of the data that they want. And there are some tools, uh, software that's already out there, but it's um, not very good, and it requires sort of a PhD level expertise in order to to extract the insights that that people want. Um, how did you and MIT get involved in this? Well, so my background is actually in this sort of boring, traditional, <laughs> business-oriented data processing world. Um, and we sort of recognize that there's this real need for um, people to be able to make sense of their, their data sets and that it moves beyond really what, what is happening in, in the traditional enterprise-oriented applications. So um, that that's the other thing that comes from my sort of role as a, I'm a part of a lab at MIT called the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab, also known as CSAIL. And one of the things that's amazing about CSAIL, it's um, this really large collection. There's about a thousand people who work in CSAIL, about a hundred um, sort of, we call them principal investigators, but professor level people who work together. And there's a lot of expertise in sort of various little subfields. And we think of big data as about bringing together these experts from subfields in order to make, make sense of data. So there's people who are experts, for example, in processing textual data. And there's people like me who are experts in the sort of traditional business-oriented applications of data. And there's people who are experts at visualizing data and people who are experts at, um, you know, making sense of photographs. And so taking all these people together, what we're hoping to do is to create sort of this initiative that will help develop kind of best-of-breed solutions that can um, address a whole different range of, of data I mean, you're problems. talking about something that could eventually change the way, I mean, everything from commercial uh, prospects on down because if you have real data and you know, people people always lie on their forms you know <laughs> right. suddenly your behavior is it, it speaks the truth whatever you're doing however you're accessing information or buying or whatever it is suddenly you've got real data that you're dealing with so this could be a very valuable Right, absolutely. I mean, so I think the commercial app. So, so there's a set of research applications, but you're absolutely right that there's a whole very interesting set of commercial applications. So, this is going to change the way that retail works. It's going to change the way that finance works. It's going to change the way that transportation works. It's going to change the way that, for example, insurance works because you know increasingly cars are becoming. You know, it's your car insurance company is very interested in understanding not just not charging you for because you drove a red car and lived in a certain zip code, but they're going to start charging you based on actually the number of miles you drove or whether you drove in a reckless way or not, or they would like to charge you in, in those ways. So I thought they did already. <laughs> well, <laughs> if you get in a lot of accidents, yeah. they would, right? But they'd like to really understand it a, fi a you know, much finer grain way about, you know, are you driving? Have you just gotten lucky and not gotten in an accident? Yeah, right, or, right, right, right. That's true. They right. can figure out how fast you're going. Right. So those... Uh, um, there's a ton of applications like that that are out there. And some of them, like the car insurance one, probably make people feel a little bit uncomfortable because there's a, a little bit of a big brother sense about it too. So Yeah, there is. I mean, because the United States government is in this uh, game as well. I mean, the NSA, yeah. uh, you know, monitors millions of communications each day. So is it are, – are you – is it similar to what they're doing? Well, so I view, I mean, I, partly I view what we're doing at MIT. Our role at MIT is about understanding not only what is the technology capable of, but how do we, you know, make it so that the technology doesn't lead to, you know, terrible privacy compromises. How do we think about securing the data? How do we think about building tools that anonymize the data in a way mm. that will, you know, allow us to extract public good for it? Because some of these applications, like the medical ones, do have tremendous public good while still, you know, protecting, protecting people's privacy. So, um, but 
it's it's absolutely right that some of the some of the applications that people are talking about when they talk about big data do have this flavor to them. And you know, the government has gotten in a little bit of trouble for they had this. You, you may or may not remember they had this thing called the Total Information Awareness Act that they announced um, seven or eight years ago. Yeah, and they of got they got in a, in a lot of trouble. for And then that, it turns actually. out they were you know. Yeah, monitoring people's yeah, and the and it's pretty clear the NSA NSA has been um, you know they they've there have been various sort of rumors about these kinds of programs that they have where they're monitoring individuals' communications and it's a little bit that stuff is a little bit disconcerting and so you know one of the things that we we it's I think good about universities being involved in this is that we don't really have a vested interest in anything I mean we're doing this in a um, sort of a a way where you know hopefully we can think about how what are the right solutions here. We can involve both people from the policy side and the technology side and try and understand um, you know how we sort of sort of make sense of all the the trade offs here. Mm-hmm. Now the state is involved in this in some way as well. Yeah. So um, uh, Governor Patrick announced last week the um, uh, uh, mass he calls it Massachusetts Big Data Initiative and. Um, I think the state perceives that this is really a there's an exciting opportunity for a lot of commercial activity in this space, and Massachusetts is pretty well positioned um, for that. There's um, you know a number of startup companies, other things in the Kendall Square area that are really yes, um, kind yeah. of been taking off, mm-hmm. and it, um, so I think they want to you know make sure that um, they lend their support to that, and they've um, you know we're very yeah. Because take have... me to the next step of this. I mean, if you develop the soft software i mean yeah soft these software solutions yeah then yeah. what what is governor patrick hoping to parlay that into if it's developed here and then yeah, well, companies I, I, in here that would actually then analyze this data sure i think it's either they do the analysis or they would sell the software tools that allow other people to do the analysis you know you think about the sort of analogy is a company big database companies like oracle you know there's going to be a whole new set of companies that develop these technology solutions for processing big data and it would be great i think both we at mit and the governor feels like it would be great if that technology you know was deployed and um, was uh, sold by companies that were based in Massachusetts. And, you know, there's academia has this sort of, um, especially places like MIT, there is a kind of way in which technology gets developed and then it gets spun out by our students and our researchers. You know, they take it and they start startup companies and those startup companies end up being acquired by larger companies. There's sort of this natural progression. And, you know, I think this is a place where Massachusetts has, has a lot of leadership already and there's a feeling like um, by the state supporting it, they can maybe hold drive, it here. It, drive it forward or hold <laughs> it here. Right. I, I think the state, you know, we kind of missed out on the internet bubble a little bit. The, um, the, and the, you know, the Facebooks and the Twitters of the world are all based in California. And I think Massachusetts regrets that. So. <laughs> <laughs> Talking to Sam Madden, he's a professor of electrical engineering and computer science at MIT and leader of the big data at CSAIL initiative. We were talking earlier. We always hear this an algorithm, this mm-hmm. term, an algorithm, which identifies data. What does that mean, algorithm? So an algorithm is just a step-by-step process for doing something. So you can think of it sort of as a, the recipe that a computer uses in order to compute some task, right? So if you had a list of numbers that you need to put in order, you might have an algorithm for sorting those numbers. Um, so you can sort of think of it as the way that um, you explain or program a computer to um, you know, achieve something. So, I mean, I'm trying to figure out how you're here. Every single business or institution is going to need to sort through the data in a different kind of way. 
I mean, I, I, it's mind-numbing. You know, simply, I mean, television is a, is a huge thing. You know, the Nielsen ratings, the Arbitron, which have already been kind of outdated, but they, they sort for viewer habit and demographics and all that. I mean, I, I wouldn't, you know, on some of these other things, like how a certain drug affects somebody's cancer. I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you narrow it to that point? Yeah, I mean, that's that's absolutely right. So there's, you know, in each little vertical like that in television or in cancer or drug research, you know, there's there are experts in those domains who work on those things. But what they – and they maybe have some intuitive sense like, you know, you take TV. If you're – imagine you're a, a company that owns DVRs like Comcast or TiVo and you understand, you know, what shows are people watching. You know, there's probably somebody who has a hypothesis that like, you know, 18 to 24-year-olds like this certain kind of show or, you know, something like that. But then what they need to do is to test those hypotheses. They need to code up these algorithms that allow them to test those hypotheses. And that's really what the software we're trying mm -hmm. to build does. You know, it says you've got this giant, massive collection of data spread across hundreds and thousands of machines. How do you... Um, make it easy for people to test these hypotheses um, without having to spend years and years and years of developing software infrastructure. So we're really trying to build reusable software that makes it so that people can quickly test hypotheses, write these algorithms over their data. You mentioned earlier that one of the concerns, of course, is uh, invasion of privacy and that there's be a way to screen out sort of the personal stuff. But Sometimes that's critical information. I mean, if you're can comparing, for instance, going back to the cancer drug uh, results from various individuals and you get identical results from three people and completely disparate results from, you know, 370 others, you'd want to know who the three were. So is there, there going to be a, a way also to go back and, I mean, it, you know, with permissions, can, or is it going to all be just so generic Sure. So, so I'm not an expert in medical data, but medical data actually is one of the best regulated kind of industries, and there are very, very strong controls and protections on, you know, individuals' privacy in the space of medicine that, you know, basically restrictions that say you must anonymize the data in certain ways so that, you know, when a data set is made available to researchers, it's not possible to go back mm -hmm. and, you know, figure out who a particular data item belongs to. Um, of course, when it's your doctor who's doing this analysis, you know, your doctor and who identifies that, you know, you have some specific specific disease or something, you know, there might be, you, your doctor likely has ways to go back and de-anonymize de that information. But yes, of course, this is a challenge, which is, um, you know, for the, sometimes you do need to, you know, drill down in the information of the data one, one level deeper in order to see some of that personal information, it can be significant. Okay, so, so is your software going to be able to kind of produce patterns and show information that someone didn't ask? In other words, I may, my business, I might ask you to, to run or the software to run uh, some kind of data analysis on something, but could you discover things that you didn't even ask? That's one of the, one of the challenges here is this is pattern discovery. So how do, and oftentimes the way that this is done is by, for example, visualizing the data because you show people pictures that you know, they can very quickly pick out a pattern or a, a, some, some regular ordered thing in some data set that they might have thought is, is sort of noisy. So absolutely, pattern discovery is one of the really key things here. You know, saying here's all these different variables that, for example, we measured about um, a person's cancer and you know, the software might be able to say these particular variables are correlated. Um, you know, it's often the case that a person from some demographic background, you know, comes in with this kind of cancer. And that's the sort of thing that you could imagine building software that could automatically discover. Okay. So you leave here today, you go back over to MIT. What is, what is it that you, <laughs> what, what, what do you physically do to, to get going with a project like this? Um, so we have a, you know, a, a, a roadmap, a research agenda of, you know, particular 
types and pieces of software that we're trying to build in order to help us tackle these um, problems. And many of them are, are the sorts of things that you talk about. So, you know, for example, some some of what we do is to I work with a team of students and postdoctoral researchers, and some of what we do is build um, software tools for specific types of big data. So I, I have a project looking at, you know, how do you make sense out of data on Twitter? How do you take all the data that's you know, coming Don't in try. real time? From, well, <laughs> maybe, maybe, but, yeah, you know, yeah. you, there are some, you know, yeah, no, pretty cool thing, pretty yeah. cool patterns in the data in Twitter. And if you look at, you know, you know, for example, companies are very interested in understanding what people are saying about them on Twitter. So, you know, can we build, so one of the things we're working on is building these software tools that allow you to um, look at the entire history of, you know, a particular term on Twitter and to understand how people's, say, opinion or sentiment varies based on what they're saying in Twitter and the blog posts linked into Twitter varies um, over time and those things. So that's a, a kind of a specific research project. Uh, you know, another one, we've had a project for a long time looking at uh, measuring, using local taxi cabs and using uh, little devices that we put in taxi cabs to measure what traffic in the Boston area oh. looks like. Um, and again, you know, this is, we work, we're partnering with the taxi cab, get them to put these devices in their cars, and then um, we've basically built maps that show what traffic around Boston looks like or even where the potholes are on Boston, really? <laughs> Boston roads using accelerometers in these devices. So th those are the kinds of the, the kinds that's of projects we do. Well, yeah, right, well, that's maybe great. it's useful. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we probably all know where the potholes are because we run over them. That's but. <laughs> true. All right, Sam Edden, thanks so much for joining us, professor of electrical engineering and computer science at MIT, and, and he's the leader of the Big Data Project over there. Thanks so much, Sam. Thanks, Emily. All right, that's going to do it for us this afternoon. We'll be back tomorrow at noon. Panhandling. Are you a giver? And just how organized are they anyway? We've done an informal survey you'll want to hear. And we'll also find out why pollen makes your eyes itch. That's some data for big data there. And stay with us now for the Cowley Crossley Show coming up next. More analysis of, analysis of this weekend's state Democratic convention. And tonight on my television show, Greater Boston, we're starting a special half-hour series, One Guest. Starts tonight with businessman, entrepreneur, philanthropist Chris Stevens, who's also suffered an unimaginable tragedy. He joins us. That's tonight at 7 on Channel 2. The Emily Rooney Show is a production of WGBH Radio. On the web at WGBH.org, Boston Public Radio. I'm Emily Rooney. Have a great afternoon.